word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. A key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Terry, it's incredible to spend some time with you, and I think that a lot of people would look you up, right, in your past and, and all that you've achieved and be intimidated by the interaction with you. And I will say that you did say in your masterclass, and I took that uh, in preps for this interview, but I love that you talked about, the, the, in essence, what I interpreted as the power of the dumb question, <laughs> the value of the dumb question. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to use that as as I start this discussion is to say that I may, I may venture into some dumb questions, but I appreciate you um, thinking about them within that context. I want to start with off air. I, I mentioned to you that I recently interviewed Conrad Wolf from a Wolf from Alpha and Conrad has some very strong opinions about math education. And he argues in his new book, the math maths fix, excuse me, that education isn't working to elevate society with modern computation, data science, and AI. And he, he contends that students are subjugated to compete with what computers do best and that they often lose. How do you feel about that where you sit in the mathematics ecosystem? And are we are we missing an opportunity to understand math's role in not only the development of young people, but how it applies to the real world? Um, well, certainly I think uh, it's a changing world. Um, I think uh, math is needed in, in many, many more disciplines than it used to be. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not just like the traditional physical sciences anymore. Um, you know, if you go into say marketing, um, you know you you encounter data science. You go to medicine. You know, if you go into healthcare, you have to encounter you know statistics and probability. Um, and so it is true that the, the math curriculum has to change a little bit. Um, now, you know, we, we've always had these debates. Every time a new technology came out, you know, like like when calculators came out, you know, did this mean that we no longer had to teach uh, our kids how to add and subtract? Um, but you know, you still need to because you need you need the number sense. Um, and you know when, what happens if if your um, you know if your calculator is, is giving you complete nonsense because you you enter things incorrectly, how can you tell? Um, so I mean you, I think we we can never sort of expunge the computational aspect of math education completely, um, but certainly we, it, there is a need to make math um, math education more flexible, more multimodal. Um, I think different students learn in different ways. Um, you know, for some people, the traditional, you know, um, you, you sit in the classroom, you take notes, you do homework, you, uh, uh, that's, that works very well. I mean, um, I enjoyed that. I actually liked, you know, getting homework and, <laughs> yeah, and math homework, you know, but for other people, you know, um, you know, I mean, some people pick up math more naturally outside the classroom, you know, for, for example, um, you know, um, uh, um, poker enthusiasts, you know, they, they pick up a lot of probability and, and, and they have very earnest discussions in, about mathematics um, without having real formal training. But you know, they're, they're just very motivated to, um, uh, to to learn a very specific type of probability that will help them play poker. Um, you know, and you know, people are interested in crypto. You know, and 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 they they may learn a specific type of math just purely for, for that uh, purpose and, and so forth. So, um, I mean, it's it's a challenge for educators because you know i mean it's 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 a lot easier as a teacher to just teach a single curriculum from a textbook and you know give you know standard homework and so forth and and now this you know you have students you know and they all they all have different interests and they, they all want to use math in different ways and you, you really have to be quite talented as a teacher to accommodate everybody uh so you know it's, it's a tough task being a, a, a in the educator in a, the public education system uh, I don't envy the teachers what they do. <laughs> yeah, no, it is, it is incredibly difficult. As you were talking there, it made me think about someone who is proficient in jazz, right? The ability, the confidence to be unstructured. And yet in a classroom, the, the power of structure allows us to analyze our results and to figure out if we're supporting students and move them around along the train, I guess, uh, from grade to grade. But yet what I'm hearing in the way in which I experienced your masterclass, and we'll get to that in a second, was this sort of fluid nature, right? That 
that you, you don't exactly know what you're going to get uh, when you approach a challenge or a problem, but that's part of the, not only the enjoyment, but that's, that process is incredibly important to the underpinnings of what mathematics brings to the experience of the, of the one working within that problem. Am I, is that fair? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the real world is, is, is messy and, you know, I mean, yeah, in a classroom environment, you know, um, there's an expectation of fairness, right? Like, like if they give you a homework question, they, they it's expected that it's something that you can solve using a technique that you learned in the last two weeks, um, in your class. Um, and the real world is not like that. Um, you know, there, there are problems where you have to, you know, dig really deep in the literature, um, or, um, or maybe the question that was asked was actually not the right one to answer, and you, you have to you have to change your problem. Or, or sometimes um, the problem is just impossible to solve with, with the techniques available uh, of, um, right now, and you just have to have to give up. Um, and yeah, and I mean it's 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 a tough transition for students, you know, because they they often they live in this sort of bubble where where everything is controlled and. And um, you know you, you 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 don't expect any trick questions or, or problems that can't can't be be uh, uh, be solved or ones that require really creative out of the box thinking that that you can't see in your textbooks. Yeah, so I mean I, I think as much education that happens outside the classroom as, as inside it. You know, I, I myself, I you know, I, I most of the mathematics I learned I, I learned after my graduate education actually. You know, I, I finished my my PhD specializing in a very narrow area of mathematics but it was only after sort of having to do real, real research problems and, and talking to people in other fields you know I, I that's when i really learned how math all fit together um i think it's the same in every profession you know say say journalism you know i mean journalism classes will only take you so far you know i mean you, you really need the in the field experience to pick up these uh, this, there's always stuff that, you, that i just not taught in, in classrooms so i mean you can't fault classrooms for not teaching Everything. I mean, yeah, they just need to teach a, a core base that you can sort of um, develop on from there. But it should not be sort of the, the final endpoint of your education by any means. Let's turn to master class. Why master class, and why at this stage in your career? Well, uh, okay. Well, I mean, the the, uh, the the short answer is that they approached me. Um, <laughs> so about a, about a year ago, um, yeah, they they contacted me and said that with. Um, they were interested in expanding into the science uh, type uh, sphere. I think most of their classes uh, are in things like cooking or uh, um, music or something. They, they, they had, only, I think, only four or five that you classify as science. Um, but they thought that that uh, that it was worth expanding into, and they contacted me. Um, and I, I have been interested in trying to find new ways to present mathematics. You know, I I, I mostly give classes to undergraduate or graduate students, um, you know, to, to people who already have had years and years of maths education. Um, and, but, but reaching the public, you know, the, the, the ones you have, you know, who didn't have a great experience, say, in, in high school in mathematics, and they're kind of scared of it. Um, and and um, to them, it's, it's just these, it's almost like these magic spells, right? You know, like, like these, these, these formulas, like incantations, which with no meaning. Um, and it's, you know, to actually, get to these people and say that actually mathematics is not so scary. It's actually um, not that's um, different from the way you normally think in real life. It's just done very systematically and precisely. Um, so I, I've been looking for a while for a way to, to reach that, to reach that audience. You know, I've given a few public lectures and so forth. And, um, I'm working on a, on, a, on a popular science book, for instance. But, um, yeah, but I, I guess maybe they came at, at a time when I was I was looking for this this type of uh, activity, and you know they they were quite professional, and and they, um, you know they said they had a lot of experience in in taking kind of the raw material of a lecture, where you know they may have some rough idea of of uh, what to present, but but they have no idea how to polish it and and film it in a way that is appealing, you know. But they could handle all the editing and the production values, um, and, uh, um, and 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 making it accessible. Um, and so it really did seem, seem like a, a, a good a good match. Um, I think when academics like myself try on our own to to reach the public, we, there's, there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes. I mean, because we, we spent you know decades and decades in the ivory tower, and we kind of forget um, that uh, um, like things that are second nature to us are, are not always uh, uh, accessible to the public. You know, like like a certain jargon that we just use without thinking about it, um, but 
uh, uh, the, the words don't have the same meaning to, to the, the general public. Well, that's what I so, I felt in your in your course. I will say that math scared me personally when I was growing up, and so you know it was quite intimidating to then take the class. But it was incredibly approachable, uh, visual. It felt as if it was, um, and it didn't feel like it was dumbed down in any way. It was just much more. Um, I don't know. It was personal in that way. I mean, you had a, a fantastic anecdote about um, solving a problem at an airport. I'd love for you to share that where they were trying to figure out how to shorten times from when you got off the plane to the baggage claim. And right, it, it right. really wasn't about the mechanics of maybe a conveyor belt moving luggage faster from point A to point B, but it was about the journey and the process and really the psychology of the experience of that traveler that made the biggest difference. And, and I want to use that as sort of a backdrop, Terry, to say it feels as if that there is a there the brand of math has been increasing and growing in popularity when we think about coding. To your point around crypto and poker and, and betting on NFL games like we've had, um, that people want to understand the the role math plays and that it can be fun, they can make money at it, it can be creative, all these other things. But then we have this perception issue where the, you know, Dr. Terry Taos of the world feels if they're at a distance or those that are like a Conrad Wolfram. And it, it's hard to understand where we sort of sit. And I'm wondering if we're just approaching or we're asking the wrong questions when it comes to math and that maybe we should be thinking about it from an entrepreneurial perspective, because it feels very much like the journey that you took me on in your masterclass, I could have substituted some of the language and that would have been a class on how to become an entrepreneur and understand sort of the, the risk reward of what you're doing and how to may, maybe make calculations that could be more advantageous to your success. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I can't speak for any other profession, um, but I, I can imagine, um, yeah, okay, so, you know, so for example, one of my advice, as, as you said earlier, you know, is, is always ask dumb questions and, um, and, and, and don't be afraid to fail. Um, and I, I can imagine that that is a lesson which is applicable, for example, in entrepreneurship. Um, Although it's, uh, I think it's it's not always a one-to-one -one map. I mean, the mm -hmm. uh, um, one thing about mathematics. Um, so um, uh, Vladimir Arnold, who was who was a great uh, mathematician, also a physicist, um, he had uh, uh, a saying that mathematics is the area of science where experiments are cheap. Um, you know, we, we don't need these multi-million-dollar labs to do things. We just need sort of a pen and paper or a blackboard. And so, you know, we can try. You, know, you want to solve a math problem. You can, you can try something, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, you you, you just wasted an hour of your time. You throw away your piece of paper. You start again. But it's not a disaster. You know, whereas you know, if you're an engineer and you're building a bridge and you make a mistake and people die, you know, that's a disaster. Um, and you know, maybe entrepreneurship is somewhere in the middle. Right? You know, if you if you raise money, you start a, a company and it fails. Uh, I guess a bunch of investors are out of money. Um, but uh, but I guess you can still keep going. Do you feel like you've entered, uh, Terry, do you feel like you've entered entrepreneurship, maybe not intentionally, but maybe accidentally um, or just without intention? And and how do you think about that in context of your life and how people perceive you professionally? Right. Well, yeah, the way the academic system is set up is that, you know, at, at the beginning of your career, um, like it, it's, it's, it's this publish or perish mentality, it's called, you know, like, like you, um, you're in a race to get a permanent position, like a tenure position, and, and you, you have to play it safe and, you know, publish lots of papers and, 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 uh, and sort of, um, not take, um, any, uh, do anything that would really risk your reputation. Um, and just, so in, you know, like, um, so your, your research would probably, um, follow to a large extent, uh, a, a well-trod path, you know, um, uh, just improving upon what what previous people did, um, but then once you have tenure, once you have um, a permanent position, at least in, in theory, you now have the, the the freedom to take some risks. You, you can do more speculative research, um, and you can do more speculative projects. Um, you know, outreach. Um, you know, maybe doing something with with, with underrepresented groups, um, and and that's just sort of the social contract that that we have. You know, so once you get to a certain level of seniority. You are um, given the freedom to 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 experiment. So, um, yeah. So I, I definitely have. You know, I, I I've had the privilege of having a secure job, so um, I can do things like this, and you know, it, it doesn't uh, won't jeopardize my my career. You know, if, if if I if I did a masterclass and it bombed, it that I just learned from it, right? I mean, it's 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 mildly embarrassing, but it's it's not career destroying. Um, if I was like a, a fresh out of grad school and, and still 
looking for a permanent physician, then I probably would not be uh, would be too risky to do something like this. But yeah, yeah, this is yeah, that's somehow how our, how our, our, our career path works. How do you how do you how do you think about personal brand? Um, I think that in the world of of entrepreneurship, brand is incredibly important uh, for the public, for your buyer, for your customer to understand your relationship to the product or service that you offer. And that could be mind share, right? Um, intellectual property. How do you think about your brand? Um, is it something that you have to, I, I know you'd rather probably, I'm, I'm going to make a guess you'd rather not think about that on a regular basis. You'd rather be um, in the middle of your discipline. But now that you have a masterclass and people are aware of, of you and they've been aware of, of you for, for years, how has that changed over time, the understanding of the brand and, and potentially the impact that you can have in a very positive light in embracing that brand? Right. Well, but certainly academics care about academic reputation. Um, I think there's a saying that, that uh, you know, academics, you know, they, they work extremely hard for the, the, the grudging respect of, of a small number of, of, of peers. Um, you know, so, I mean, being respected by your peers, um, you know, like, I, I, you know, often when you do something extremely technical in advance, there's a small number of people who really get what you're doing. Um, and getting any feedback from them is, is often extremely uh, um, satisfying and, and, and meaningful. Um, but yeah, I guess more recently I've, I've learned that we have a brand to the wider public, and not just to each other. Um, that that mathematicians in particular, uh, it took me a while to realize that you know that um, there is a certain respect, um, or almost like an awe. I think They're like you know when when someone when two people are debating about about some some facts you know like like whether some some vaccine is is uh, effective or whatever um if one of them can cite someone and they say and they with uh, and they, they they can who 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 can throw math around you know then um unless the other person has mathematical training you know that they, they have it's, it's hard to counter um sort of um um, an authority figure which is using this sort of scary math that 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 that, that you, you can't really understand um and so and Maybe because math mathematicians have managed to to stay a little bit more out of political debates than than most people. Like I, it's our maybe the the authorities that we have is is not quite as as polarized as politicized as as with many other um, traditional authority figures. Um, so there is maybe some role to play that, that we, we can still we we have a voice that is still kind of heard at least if not understood properly. Um, so perhaps we, yeah, we have some responsibility to, uh, you know, for example, speak out against, um, like, uh, innumeracy or, or, or using statistics very badly, you know, or just trying to educate the public. I mean, I, 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 you know, I've, I've been searching, for example, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation about, uh, um, um, you know, about the, the, the effectiveness of, of, of COVID vaccination and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been trying actually on my blog to, to come up with a few ways to try to convey like what uh, quantify risk and, and and things like that so far without too much success i, I have to say um <laughs> but um you know it, it's important i think to keep having this conversation and, um, you know one thing that surprised me terry in your master class and it was a it was a very pleasant surprise was your um you, you really embraced the concept of narrative and i don't know if i had ever thought about mathematics and those that are mathematicians and the concept of narrative uh, in the same sentence. Can you speak a little bit about that when you, because to me, this is a, it is a story component. I mean, this is, you know, people understanding those, I think that are at, at you know, within the same, uh, that achieved similar heights as you have in your accomplishments and understanding how then you can communicate and reach the public to your earlier uh, discussion point and desire. And then one of the reasons why Masterclass came at a really good time is that narrative to understand how, in essence, I'm not saying you are a role model, but there are kids out there that are looking sort of up at you and what you've accomplished and said, boy, maybe I could be the next Dr. Tao. And and I'm wondering how much of that narrative uh, plays a role in your active or daily thinking. Yeah, so so that's something I definitely, I, I said before that a lot of math I learned after graduate school. This is something I definitely learned after graduate school. So Throughout my education, um, there was almost this macho attitude that that math was somehow almost anti-narrative. Uh, that um, 
that you know there, there are some cold hard facts um and you, we're not sort of told the story of how to use them or so forth you just expect it to become very good at at solving problems and, and pulling rabbits out of hats to 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 answer questions um and not really seeing a big picture um and um like it it, 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 it the emphasis in my education was often on just pure technical mastery um without any narrative like without any sort of wider purpose I remember actually I was a bit vague. I, I, I as a as a uh, as a student, I remember I, I had only had a very vague idea of what mathematicians actually do. I thought there was there was some higher authority that would give every so often give us some problems to solve, um, <laughs> and we would, we would solve them um, without knowing what uh, uh, why. Um, but yeah, it, it was only after I did research and talking to other leading mathematicians, and whenever they talked, you know, they were always. You know, they they didn't focus on on the on technique and well, I mean, sometimes they did, but but they they often wanted to say, okay, what's the, what's the story here? What are we trying to do? What, you know, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? You know, what what the, what are we hoping to get here? Uh, you know, uh, and, and and what what does this story remind me of? Okay, so are there other stories in mathematics which um, which had a similar beginning? And what was how how do they end? Uh, what was how do they end up? So what can we expect to happen here? Bit by bit, I just sort of realized how important it was, and I, um, I think there was um, um, some article that someone wrote about advice on how to give good mathematics presentations, and that that um, I forget who it was, but, but someone just stressed over and over again that you know, yeah, it's it's you're telling a story just like a filmmaker or a playwright or a, a comic, um, you know, and and um, you know, despite sort of our conceit that mathematics is somehow less uh, is more rational and, and, and less uh, less human somehow than, than other disciplines. It, it's, it still is very important to to have the same sort of yeah, narrative beats. Um, you know um, that, that uh, you know, there should be like a, a protagonist and an antagonist, and uh, there should be tropes. You know that that, that your story should should remind uh, the audience of, of other stories that they already know. And yeah, well, once I got that, somehow it, it just made math a lot more fun. You know, it, it wasn't just pure technique, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What is I, mean, I was going to say, Terry. What is your hope with with masterclass? Have you thought about that? Is that a conversation that you've had, sort of at home with family, to you know, because this can change the trajectory of the way and the number of people that get to know you for for different reasons outside of being, you know, called the Mozart of math and and these sorts of things. Um, you know, you, you're you're a professional in your your mid forties, and you're not the the child prodigy anymore in that regard. And this could be changing the trajectory. Um, of the way in which people engage with you, uh, want to work with you. Uh, how do you think about that? What are some of those in internal conversations you're having? I guess, um, I mean, I, I still view myself primarily as an academic and that I would mostly interact with other people in the academic sphere. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, there have been a few scientists who've, who've become you know, public figures, um, you know, like Carl Sagan, for instance, and I guess or Neil deGrasse Tyson, like that. Um, I've, um, I guess I've, I myself, um, I mean, I, I don't kind of see myself going fully down the public scientist type, uh, public figure type, uh, type role. I, mean, I hope more people in my profession do. Um, I, I think there is somehow a tendency for, for too, too many of us to just stay in our ivory tower and, and not engage with all the outside world. Um, I mean, what I'm hoping actually is that, um, is that many other um, of my colleagues uh, start doing things like this, uh, not necessarily masterclass, but, um, you know, so as I was mentioning just before we started the interview, you know, there's, there, are, there are other colleagues, you know, who are talking to other journalists and, or, or they're working with uh, YouTubers to, to produce, you know, fairly high quality um, videos about science and math. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think it's, it's not so much specifically myself that, that needs to be, in the spotlight, but uh, if if more people like me are uh, uh, out there um, trying to engage, uh, that would be better for everybody. Are you comfortable? Are you more? I think you you, you leaned into this just an, a second ago, but do you feel comfortable? Or are you uncomfortable with the the thought that people might think of you as an entrepreneur? I well, I mean, I. To the extent that I take risks, I mean, but, it, but from a position of, of safety, I have to say, I mean, you know, I mean, I have a, I have a permanent academic position, and then I, I, I do little things like like um, this, this masterclass. It's, um, it's, 
I think, um, okay, I mean, if you want to call that entrepreneurship, um, <laughs> yeah, but it, 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 it's not, it's not like sort of betting your entire livelihood on, on the success of, of, your, of, your, of your endeavor or something. I mean, yeah, if, 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 if I quit my, my day job and I, I, I try to, I don't know, become a YouTube blogger or something. I, um, <laughs> Breaking news today, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've not tried actively, you know, I mean, I, I kind of grasp the concept that, you know, I, I could be more active about, you know, managing my brand and, you know, have lots of social media and, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, merchandising or something. Okay. But, <laughs> um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I still see this as, as kind of not my primary role. I mean, like if, if in the course of being an academic, I can engage with the public um, without sort of having to give up on, on, on research and all my academic duties, you know, that's, that's great. Um, you know, um, it's possible that that my 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 career goals may change as as I get older. I mean, they certainly have changed. You know, when, when I was 10, 10, 20 years ago, I, I only really cared about research. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, it's sort of uh, certainly it's 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 nice that I, I have a certain amount of uh, name recognition that I I'm still I guess looking for the the optimal way to use it. Um, you know, um, so you know this this masterclass is an experiment. I I don't see myself doing a lot of these things in the future, uh, or at least not specifically this um, this. But uh, um, yeah, but you know, I had a positive experience with with, uh, with masterclass. So um, if I've, there's some other outreach project that looks like something that where I can I can contribute um, and make a difference, I, um, I'd be interested, but I don't know exactly what the best use of it is. My time is yet. What has, what has been the feedback or the response to them? I know it just launched, but have you had any feedback uh, from your from your peers? Um, okay, so my peers are, uh, they're they're kind of amused. I think I, I mean it's, it's not really aimed <laughs> at um, at people who already have mathematical background. <laughs> right, it's aimed uh, for people like me, Terry. <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. Um, I think they're happy. I mean, you know. We, um, my colleagues, I, I generally agree that we don't do enough outreach, um, and so outreach in, in any form, I think, is good. Yeah, on my blog, um, it's kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, so so people are excited. Uh, the fact that it's um, that it's it's paywalled uh, has annoyed a bunch of people. But you know, I mean, this is a masterclass is a full profit company, um, and they did they did put a lot of effort into the production values. You know, it was actually, I mean, they, uh, it was non trivial non trivial cost to actually produce these things. Um, so, um, yeah, so there was some talk, you know, uh, is it would be this some way to do some open source equivalent of this, you know, like maybe get a Patreon to, to, to do these things. Um, yeah, maybe, well, but, um, although, I, uh, I mean, that's also a nice idea, but I, I think currently the, the only venue for this, this, this type of high production value, uh, content is through companies like Masterclass. When is the last time, Terry, that you felt, um, stumped by a problem? I think it would be very interesting for people to know uh, what that's like for someone who, you know, it, it, on on the surface, it would it would appear that you are not intimidated by a problem that you have the the wherewithal to break down a problem and understand uh, that if you, if you break it into pieces, it's a lot easier to to approach uh, and tackle. Maybe about two days ago. I mean, so you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, every so often, I, you know, I I, I keep. Uh, you know, scouring the um, there are these math discussion groups and there are these preprint servers that 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 um, 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 give out new papers. And I, I was reading a paper by a colleague who was trying to solve a certain problem, um, which was in my area. And and I, uh, he said he couldn't solve it. And I said, oh, but that's funny. That, that looks kind of easy. Let me, let me try it. Um, and I I I I worked on it for like a day, um, and I could make some progress. But yeah, those. Uh, I could. I, I realized that that all the tricks I had could not touch the sort of the, the core difficulty of this problem, um, and I, 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 you know, it's actually a good problem, but uh, it needs a tool that I don't have. Um, so I, I made a note of it. Um, I, I, I keep a list of, of open questions that I might return to someday. And how big is that collection of of questions that you might? Yeah, pages and pages. I, I don't. I mean, I, I often don't actually go back and look as often as I should uh, on on that list. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I constantly try things and, and they don't work. And but I, I don't publicize this fact. You know, so there is a there is definitely a selection bias in academia that you only publish things that work. 
I mean, it's actually, it's actually a serious problem. I mean, that, that uh, like in, in science, like negative results are not often not published. Uh, you know, you try something and it fails, and that's actually useful information for other people. But it's kind of embarrassing to to, to publish that because it doesn't sound, you know, it doesn't look like you've accomplished anything. But Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy Matt at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now, back to our guest. That, doesn't that feel like, a, that feels like a, uh, a part of the larger problem? I mean, we were talking earlier about education, right? And the, the lack of connection to students and then maybe applicability to their real lives. And yet in the ivory tower, if we're afraid to publish our failures, we've just, we're, you know, we're, we're perpetuating this cycle of, of where we can't fail. It has to be perfect. You know, in right. essence, like right. you were born this way, you didn't sort of grow along the way and learn and fail and pick yourself back up and approach a problem right. in a different way. Yeah, no, the culture is changing, but, but yeah, that, that has certainly been the dominant culture in at least mathematics for, for decades. Like it's kind of this macho you know, um, you can you can only thrive here if, if you're this infallible genius, um, and um, and that you you don't reveal your your methods and you definitely don't reveal your your, your mistakes. Um, that is changing. Uh, I think the younger generation are more relaxed about this, um, and um, and they they they, they I, I think they they um, um, they gravitate more and and they 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 relate more to people who are willing to admit the mistakes um or, or or to view the mistakes as just partial you know like you know i could solve half the problem but not the other half and then um someone else i say oh but actually i know i have an idea of how to solve, solve the half that that that, that, that that you couldn't solve what is it like terry when when you when you've solved something so i love that just thinking about your peer your colleague saying this is i'm having trouble solving this and you said let me let me tackle this and you spend a day let's just say that that was an instance where you did solve it what, I don't, I have no understanding or I, it, it, I struggle to comprehend what that experience might be like. Is it, is it akin to a, to a natural high that you might have or the, someone might have on the athletic field or if they've closed a deal for business or, you know, won the spelling bee? What is it like when you've solved something and you know it? Yeah, um, certainly there is a high aspect to it. I think, um, I mean, Solving the problem is definitely cool, um, but actually, the, the thing that that really is the most enjoyable is the connection with with the person you're working with. Like, um, you know, you the moment when you both see that you solved the problem, and like you you can look at each other and you know you high five. And um, but like, um, uh, but actually, also the process. You know, like um, when when you you're both um, chasing a problem down, and and you you've almost got it, um, and um, when you're on the same wavelength to somebody, like like um, you can, it's almost like you're you're thinking with the same, with the same mind. Like you know, you can, you can just say a, uh, the brief outline of an idea, and the other person completely gets what you're saying because because they're immersed in the same task of solving the problem that that you are, um, and it is really uh, somehow a, a, a thrill to to uh, um, problem solve with somebody who is exactly on the same wavelength as you. Um, it's um I, I I don't know if you've ever been so close to a friend that you can like finish each other's, each other's sentences. Um you know, it's, it's happened a few times with me. Um but and it's kind of a similar feeling to that. I go I go back to, to jazz. If we were both, you know, we both I don't know, we 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 were jazz musicians and we met up at a at a jazz club that we could just we could play because we we resonated right. at the same right decibel right. that kind of a thing or synchronized swimming or even in athletics you talk about it it's like being on a string with another human yeah. being and see that's what so that right there terry to me is what is amazing if i take anything from our discussion today it's that that to me i think is going to be surprising to people but it's so welcoming um and inspiring that it's not maybe number crunching um as I say in a very sort of cold, callous way, but it's actually the relationship. That's the experience that is euphoric um, for someone in, in your position. It's, you know, I think the general public's access to a mathematician is, is sadly um, deficient in just number of opportunities, right? I mean, I, the, the irony is one of my favorite movies growing up was Good, Good Will Hunting. 
right? And so the backdrop of, a, of an incredibly bright young man. Um, but you know why I think that I love that? If we sort of talk about guy movies or, or males and, and friendship is the relationship that the character had with the professor. <laughs> and that though, when you talked about, you know, your colleague and giving them five, you know, uh, when you've solved a problem, that that's, I think, the connection that the audience feels, not the numbers and, you know, like right, the right. language that we can't speak as as the the layman, but it's the relationship that we can relate to. Yeah. Uh, and and that's the direction in which mathematics is, has been trending. I mean, in the past, I think it was more of the lone person, you know, genius in the attic um, um, uh, trope was more accurate. But, but, but mathematics is a collaborative discipline now. I mean, it's just so complicated, and um, you know, I mean, no one person really can 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 solve all these all these problems anymore. Um, and you know, people's skills have become more and more important um, in in math. Um, yeah, if it's it's actually you know, I mean, there is this sort of stereotype of mathematicians being you know socially awkward and 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 not uh, um, even uh, to the point where they they can't interact so well with other mathematicians but um that, that is changing actually i mean just the, the nature the way we do our job we, we have to to be social and 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 to work about others you know and to communicate effectively how comfortable are you as you are in your mid-40s when you just in your own skin um oh yeah that has changed um yeah i i i was a lot more concerned when i was younger about looking foolish and reputation and yeah more self-conscious um you know yeah i I think uh yeah it's easier to loosen up i think yeah i mean there's a certain like the first time like you know you you crack a joke in in lecture um like i've I've noticed like when when uh, a postdoc someone fresh out of grad school teaches a class normally they are quite nervous and they they stay close to the textbook and they don't take any risks. <laughs> um, but you know, as you get older, you, you can you can start saying you know taking a few more uh, liberties and you know you make some jokes. You might say some statements that are actually quite outrageous, um, at the, but uh, but but designed to provoke the, the students and generate discussion and so forth. And after you do this a few times, then you can get a, a bit more um, comfortable doing that. So yeah, certainly I, I feel like I can I can do that more and more. Um, yeah. Also helps that you get once you get a stable job, you know, <laughs> then you feel more secure. What, so talk about if you don't mind just sharing. Um, are you always thinking about? Is your mind always running where you can't turn it off? That you are thinking about the problem that you just started to attempt uh, to tackle the the next one that you're thinking about. Can you turn it on and off? Well, um, nowadays uh it sort of gets turned on off for me um i mean uh this you know i have i have two kids and and uh you know there's always something happening at home and uh you know there's this and i have always meetings with various i mean so um yeah i'm on all these committees which are sort of about math but not actually math um so you know i i no longer have these huge stretches of time where i just do mathematics uh but it, i just have these blocks of like two or three hours every few days for something where I can, I can, I can, um, think about a problem. And then because of that, you know, when I do get an opening in, in my, in my schedule and I'm, I'm not super exhausted, you know, then I will just jump into, uh, um, working on something for a while, but then often something will distract me and then I have to set it aside. Um, what is it? So yeah, what is it like? I have Terry? to go to multitask. <laughs> to talk about uh, we're, we're both fathers. Um, what is it like to be a father and and to be a father that is um, of some celebrity and one that is based on accomplishment, right? Like a skill set, not just social media, because that's twenty twenty two. We do have that. Um, do you think about that in the development of your children and and how they might, in essence, assess their own? achievements or growth especially when their father has has done so much and especially in the public eye in some ways i'm you know, so I, I live in los angeles um and so um somehow i think you know, there's there's a lot of celebrities around here just in general um <laughs> so like you know in the, the schools that i go to you know there, there was a couple of children of, of movie stars and uh and, and people like that um and some you know there's some children of, of very wealthy uh people in a way, I you know, and and while 
maybe I am known in some circles. You know, I'm not as known as as a Hollywood movie star or whatever. Um, so um, I don't think um, it has been that made that much of a difference to me. You have to ask my kids. I mean, maybe within like you know, like like in the in their um, you know science clubs or something, right? They, uh, they may have heard of me. Um, with their, his their peers, um, um, but I think people adapt. You know, so you know when 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 I was a kid, you know, I skipped a lot of grades. Um, and at one point, you know, I was uh, my my classmates were five years older than me, um, and I remember that, you know, at the first week of class, you know, people would stare at me and and it'd be kind of weird. Um, but you know, um, after a, a week or two, you know, I you know we'd have the same homework assignments and I. I'd be at the same level as the people in at the rest of my class. You know, I have, this, I have the same difficulties with with, with the material, um, and it. I think at the, pretty soon people just got used to it. You know, I just happened to be a lot smaller than than you know, the classmates, but but uh, it wasn't actually that strange. Um, so I think people are just used to adapting. Do you find that there are social implications to that that accelerated growth or the path that you were on by skipping five grades? It did mean that my social life got kind of uh, mixed up in, in, a, in a different order, you know. So, like, I, I didn't go to like social events, you know? so uh, like the equivalent of a prom uh, in, in high school. Um, uh, we don't quite have the same thing in, in Australia, but but um, but I, I didn't go to these things. You know, it was only when I went to um, Princeton as a graduate student at age sixteen that I started hanging out with some undergraduates um, and made some friends, and you know, joined a, a movie club and a bridge club and things like that. Um, and I think I had many of the social activities that you normally have in high school. I'd actually got in either college or, or, or grad school. We started dating once I came, came, came to UCLA. Yeah, it was mixed up for a while, but I, it, it, I kind of, I think I got most of the experiences that a normal kid um, would eventually, uh, just uh, in a slightly different uh, order. What advice would you give for a young student that is very interested in mathematics and they may not know it they may be interested in coding or they may be interested just in sort of stem subjects writ large what advice would you have for them because uh, i think it's fascinating when you were younger you, you know you talked about it here and I've, I, I know you talked about it in the master class just n not fully understanding what mathematicians did um it, you know i think it's important for young people to know what accomplished mathematicians are doing and how they are impacting planet earth in any number of disciplines because it allows them to set course on a path that may take them there, but it might also create a beautiful new path as well, utilizing the discipline of mathematics. Yeah. Well, if they're, if they are, if they are interested in mathematics, there are so many activities and resources now, you know, there are in the communities, there's, there's these, um, there's some very high quality, uh, mathematical bloggers. Um, there's, uh, there are online, Courses, which are many of which are free, actually, um, Khan Academy being a, a famous example, for instance. Um, you know, it, it's um, to give advice. Um, I would say that it's it's not necessarily a race. You know, so, um, like, uh, you know, sometimes kids or their parents get obsessed. Oh, you know, I, I must get like uh, must graduate in, as as, as um, and must be the youngest person to to finish high school or whatever and, and get perfect grades here and so forth. And and you know I mean some amount of academic achievement is is useful and important, but it shouldn't be your your primary goal. Um, I remember a friend who was dead set on, on getting into Harvard, and and she was obsessed with with the GPA, and and uh, it's just you know nothing could jeopardize her admission to Harvard. And you know she actually did get into Harvard as a uh, as an undergraduate, and then she didn't quite know what to do next. <laughs> this was her. <laughs> <laughs> She'd reached the mountaintop. Yeah, um, and she hasn't sort of thought of, of step two um, past that. Um, so, like it, it, you know, you shouldn't fixate on any specific target, like numerical target. Like, you know, I, I, I must be in this university with this GPA by this year or whatever. Um, I mean, the world keeps changing, and and you know, there may be professions that could use your talents that don't even exist right now, um, and. Uh, you know, who knows? You know, you, you could you could use your your you, know, you you could be working to train an AI to 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 do stuff that that just is, that doesn't exist right now. Well, and I'm gl I'm glad you brought up AI because that you know there are countries around the world that are investing 
exponentially more resources into the development of, of AI uh, and, and AI's application, and yet we are far behind from what I have read here in the United States. Are there, do you agree or what is your perspective on the real world implications of not actively invest, investing in, as a society, the power of math beyond sort of a basic level of attainment that we think we need young people to have, whether or not they're going to go into mathematics as a profession or not? Yeah, no, that, that is, that is, will be a problem. I mean, I think in the very near term, we're still okay because uh, the U.S. is still being, uh, is still a magnet for the best and brightest around the world. Um, like the, uh, our, our top universities and also top, top tech companies can still attract talent from all over the world. Um, and so it's, it, if, if our, if domestically we're not producing enough people at the highest levels of, of, Technical training, who can who can work on these problems? Uh, it's kind of okay. Um, there is a long term worry that maybe um, the U.S. is is no longer like the dominant um, place to go. You know, it, it it used to be even ten years ago um, that uh, a, a student in China or India or or Europe, or whatever, if they wanted to to get a top class education um, at the graduate level, they would almost certainly can, uh, want to go to a U.S. Uh, university. Um, but you know, um, the rest of the world is catching up, um, and you know, and uh, and sometimes actually, it's uh, it, it's the environment here has not been always um, completely friendly to 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 immigrants, um, and uh, you know, so it's like you know, um, like all my uh, all, all the foreign academics who come here, they they all they all have a story to tell about the bureaucracy of getting a visa, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's 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 not always. Uh, an easy process, um, especially during COVID. Actually, got a lot worse. But uh, um, so um, I think at the strategic level, sort of the U.S. government has to make sure that that uh, this is still a very attractive place for for um, really talented people uh, to work. But yes, uh, uh, we we also have to work on domestic, uh, you know, on, on training of uh, domestic students uh, who are interested in, in to to have all the opportunities to. To to uh, to use their talents, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a tough problem, um, but uh, um, yeah, and you, know, you have to you have to work to to stay competitive um, for sure. You can't just sort of rest on our laurels. Yeah, or on past successes, decade. right? Yeah, is there a, is there a Mount Everest of a of a problem out there that that maybe you hold dear that you want to be able to tackle someday and solve? I don't even know if that is. Ignorance on my part, but I would yeah, think that yeah, if uh, I had your talent, that there might be one problem that I'd say that's the one I want to be able to solve. Yeah, no, there's there's, there's a couple like that. Um, yeah, I mean they're kind of technical to state. I mean there's, there's something called the, the trim the trim prime conjecture, which is one of the oldest conjectures in number theory, um, at least three or four hundred years old, maybe older. Um, and we've been inching towards solving that, but this that that is like a mountaintop where. We don't have, um, you know, we, we can get sort of a third of the way up the mountain again, but if these big cliffs, we need a new tool. Um, so uh, yeah, I've been sort of tinkering with, with various easier versions of that problem over the years. Um, there's this um, question about, um, um, it's called the Navier-Stokes regularity problem. Um, the, the, the colloquial problem is, is can water spontaneously explode? Um, that, that is it possible to have some configuration of fluid which which um, suddenly the, the, the velocity becomes infinite and it just blows up um, and, and does something very unphysical. Uh, and of course, this, this doesn't happen in, in real life. You know, you swish water around for a while, it eventually calms down and, and, and uh, uh, becomes still. But, but there is potentially some very weird initial configuration of water that, that, that somewhat defies the laws of physics and, and it just becomes more and more agitated. Um, and I've been trying to actually build such a solution for, for a while, and, and again, it's extremely difficult. And Do you I think about the application of that solution? It's not. It wouldn't be very practical. Um, yeah, it, it is really just a theoretical. I mean, we know possible that that one could, if if one could find uh, some configuration that is something weird, one could use it uh, to I don't know design more efficient um, more aerodynamic boat, boats or something. But it's a stretch. Would you say that that uh challenges or problems like like the ones that you mentioned that are hundreds of years old at least in the first instance that that is a way it, it's almost like um 
what I might think of as exercise. It's it's not potentially that I have a that I'm going to reach a certain goal, but it's the the exercise. It's the game of it, which is yeah, is very positive. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's yeah. You know, these problems are kind of benchmarks for how good our technology is. Um, that can help refine our tools, um, force us to develop new techniques, which could then be useful for more practical problems. Um, so they're kind of test problems. Yeah, it's 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 basic research. It's it's not really uh, directly motivated by applications, but uh, uh, what often tends to happen is that a technique that solved one of these basic problems for which the, which mathematicians pursue for their own sake. You know, 20, 30 years later, some physicist or chemist or engineer is solving some real world problem, and um, and they they realize that it is similar to this really weird abstract problem that the mathematician considered two decades ago, and they're able to adapt whatever trick or method was used to solve that problem, solve their own problem. But this is what Eugene Wigner called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Hmm. Um, mathematicians work on things with no, uh, with often very little regard for the real world application, but often it, it ends up uh, being used so much later. Um, I think I gave an example in my master class of, of coin weighing puzzles, which were, um, mm-hmm. which have since been um, the techniques have since been used to you know, like speed up MRI scans, for instance. To one example, I want I want to circle back um, and and put a bow on this conversation. In the beginning, I talked about Conrad Wolfram and his his new book, or, or over the last year, the Maths Fix. And I want to also, and again, dumb question. So <laughs> you gave me the the opportunity to ask a dumb question, but this concept of truth by contradiction that you mentioned or you, you go through in your master class, mm-hmm. I wonder if you mm-hmm. could apply that to this challenge that, that Conrad is putting out there that's saying that, you know, students, uh, are, in his words, are subjugated to compete with what computers do best and lose. Meaning, you know, how can we look at potentially the problem of math education um, and can we do that through the application of truth by contradiction? How might we do that? Um well, we can certainly try different modes of, of education. You know, um, I mean, uh, there are some lots of experiments um, where we, we teach in a completely different way. Um, you know, like like one fashionable thing these days is to have uh, flipped classrooms. You know, so in, instead of you know, normally um, in class, uh, the teacher talks, and then at home, um, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the students do you know do the homework and so forth. You know, but uh, you know. Um, you could you could definitely play with different models and, and see whether um, um, you know. So in, in a flipped classroom, actually, the students watch the lectures at home, and then in class they they try to solve problems with with the teacher in a much more interactive, freeform way. And so um, we can we can certainly try uh, different ways of of teaching kids that that don't follow the old paradigms. Um, do you think that's needed, or the time is now to do that? I mean, if we think about a COVID world of, of education, where kids were immediately dropped into remote learning environments, they were it was right. a little bit of a flipped environment, you know, by right. n- not by choice. Um, and I'm wondering if now would be the time to think about it. But I would imagine that one of the ingredients we would need would be, uh, you know, almost like a, a, a you know, a letter from the principal giving us uh, the okay to fail because it feels like. Right, we still right. are in this paradigm, this construct that we cannot fail. Yet, when we do graduate right. and we're working, you know, with professors like you at UCLA, failure is a part of the process. That's part of the enjoyment. <laughs> but yet, we're not instilling that at the ground floor with young people. And I think that then there's a disconnect, because if I'm not truly passionate or I don't understand the way in which I can contribute to the field of mathematics, I'm probably going to go pursue something else because I didn't have that initial experience that said it was okay to fail. Right. Yeah, no, it, it's it's definitely not a political starter to say, okay, I'm going to try something that, that may fail your kids. You know, that means <laughs> your kids will fail to get educated. Who's in? Who, yeah, who's with okay. um, Yeah, so so I think for now, I mean, it, 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 it's 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 only at the fringes where like you can do pilot projects where the students opt in, volunteer to to be part of an experiment, um, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Um, I mean, there, there is this problem. I mean. Um, I'm not so much uh, engaged in, in, in these sort of uh, school education issues, but um, there is there. I do know that there's this phenomenon that that sometimes there are these pilot projects and um, and they're extremely successful. You know, and you know, the, the, the teachers invest a lot of time into making this new teaching pattern work, and they get great results. The students all come out really happy and, and high achieving, and then they try to scale it up uh, to and, and they bring in more more teachers who are not 
as enthusiastic and they don't quite understand the, how, what's going on and and it, it almost never scales up you know and you know the thing about so tradi traditional education you know all its faults you know and like you're saying you know it's it's dry it's outdated and whatever it at least scales <laughs> you know i mean right. uh, <laughs> it does it, it feels like everything has to go back to scale whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're in math and education in essence if it doesn't scale we don't in essence have time resource um, yeah. or interest in moving things forward. Yet it seems like those, yeah. you know, going down the rabbit hole actually benefits our species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, isn't that called like the innovator's dilemma or something? There's, there's some mm -hmm. gap. Uh, I forget the, the term, but yeah, yeah, yes. Between a successful pilot project and and a, and a successful scale, uh, yeah, uh, mass mass market appeal. I forget. The, I, you probably know the term. <laughs> So Terry, let, let, let's close with this. I want to be respectful of your, your time. And, and I know you've got students probably you have to get back to um, and, and problems to solve. Um, if you and I, if we circle up or if I, if I run into you in Los Angeles in, in five years, what will be your, um, how will, if I say, you know, Terry, how has it been over the last five years since masterclass? How is, how has your life changed by being more public in your expression of your talent and the impact, you know, how are you going to assess this over time? Not maybe just masterclass, but just your outreach to the public that you talked about earlier on in our discussion. How are you going to assess that and be able to communicate maybe how you've, how far you've come? I, I don't, okay. Yeah, no, I, I don't sort of keep metrics like this. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm speaking in the abstract, not that it would be an official thing, but it's one of those where you, there's a in the same sense that you said that when you've solved something, but you're sharing that with a peer and the excitement and the exhilaration of doing that, it's the same kind of thing, right? So you're not, you, you, there may not be a, uh, a number you can point to or a, a set of data that would speak to success or outreach and an extension of, of your teachings in that regard. But there's a, there's a sensibility of it, right? There's something that you can't really quantify, but just says, you know what? I have evolved, if I'm you, into this space of being somewhat of an ambassador uh, for mathematics to support education and sort of the next generation. Yeah, well, certainly I can see myself having just more contacts in the public engagement space. You know, so um, I mean, I, I, I met some very interesting people while while, while doing this masterclass, and, and maybe because of masterclass, some other I will get contacted again or. Um, or you know, or um, more people will take my calls. You know, if, if I if I contact some, you know, I I don't know uh, a TV station or something. Um, you know, maybe they may have heard of me more. You know, I mean, it's it's you know, network. You know, so this was this amorphous networking effect. You know? So um, and you know, and, and now that I've done a, a little bit of of this in, uh, public engagement, you know, I, it's it's not as scary as I thought it was. Um, and so it, it, it might be something that I'm, I'd be willing to do again. And yeah, in five years, I'm, I might be involved in another project, something to do with with reaching out the public. I I don't I don't know what it would be yet. Yeah, I I, I tend to rely a lot on serendipity and, and to see what happens. Um, I mean, anyway, that's how research works. Certainly, you know, you you solve a problem, and and, and then only after you solve one problem do you realize what the next step is going to be. See that would be that surprises me that you would you would mention serendipity. I would think that maybe I've just been conditioned to think that someone in your position would not want to rely on chance in that regard, or my understanding and interpretation of serendipity is some level of chance. Well, um, I, 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 the analogy I like to give is that research is, is like an investment portfolio. You might have some very safe investments, maybe equivalent bonds, or, um, you know, where you, you have these sort of low risk, low return projects. Which you kind of know how how they're going to work, and you just have to put an effort. Um, but then you have some high risk, high return type things where you're going to try something that's kind of crazy, and if it works, it's going to be fantastic. If it doesn't work, oh well, maybe but you still learn something. Um, and then uh, there'll be this extra time set, set aside for just random stuff that you can't even predict. Um, you know, these these unknown unknowns to put the, as as Rumsfeld famously said, right there. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the projects that I, I, I've been most uh, satisfied with it just sort of came out because i was at a conference or, or i was meeting with with another colleague and we just talked and, and we, we just found a, con uh, a connection you know a, a problem that i had that, that they could that they could contribute to or vice versa 
um, and often um, there are things I worked on which a year ago I would not have imagined that I, I would at all be involved in. I, I will say this as uh, as we wrap up, Terry. There, there's an approachability that that I get from you that is um, it it's such a pleasant surprise. I think that the the ivory tower um, and people's experience with it is is the exact opposite. And I think that there is a there's a thoughtful pause to your responses that says that you are you're present. And I think that higher education could could learn from that. So I'm hoping that master class is a is a uh, maybe not the first step, but it's a, a step um, in a series of steps that will allow you uh, more platform to communicate because I think it's important for for young people who know they have a talent, but for whatever reason, that talent that they have may or may not be as um, socially, I guess, celebrated, right? And when we're young, being good in math mm. and science doesn't seem to be something that everybody is cheering about, right? It's about the accolades on the athletic field. Um, but we all benefit the most from those that bring um, such skills that, that you do. So I, I think this is probably just the beginning for you. Um, you know, your, your brand is, is getting ready to, to, to take off. And so it's just been a, a pleasure to spend some time with you. And uh, anytime I can ask dumb questions, it just means I'm going to ask <laughs> less of them at home. So I do, <laughs> I thank you as a husband and a father that you allowed me to okay. do that and uh, continued success with all that you're doing. Hopefully masterclass will be, uh, like I said, the start of many things to come and, uh, maybe we'll, we'll run into each other one day on the UCLA campus. But once again, we want to thank Dr. Terrence Tao. Terry, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom. Headroom.